begin our reading this morning through verse 14. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we pause these moments as we have read your word. I ask that your spirit might provide us each discernment therein, that as you would use the teaching of your word in each of our lives to mature us in the faith, to point us to Christ and our, our further dependence upon him, that we might have humble hearts before you, Lord, recognizing that it is good that you have spoken to us. It is good that you have given us your word. It is good that you have instructed us, that you rebuke and correct us by the working of your spirit using your word. And so may we have pliable hearts and minds within your hands. As we would hear the voice of our shepherd as he speaks, may we, Lord, submit ourselves in in obedience to your voice. We thank you for the opportunity we have to open the Word of God this morning, and we just ask that it's perfect work as your Spirit would use it in every heart and life of these that have gathered with us this day. Continue, Father, that work which you have committed yourself to do in conforming us to the image of your Son, for we are in need of that work to be accomplished. So may you remove all of us out of the way, all that would hinder from your grace and your glory being manifested and revealed in and through us, Lord, may those things be removed and cut out. And may it be that you, as you work your perfect work in our hearts and lives, that we, as people submitted unto you, would truly be that which you've called us to be as light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a dark, desperate world. And as well, Father, that we would edify one another as we grow and mature in your truth that it would not just be that which we soak up and, and we store away, but, Father, we would practice and live in the truth of your word each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Last week we examined verses 10 and 11 of this passage as we have been making our way through this uh, fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And Paul, as we have seen in this portion of the, of the book or epistle, He explains the superiority of the contentment experienced only in Jesus Christ. In verses 10 and 11, we read once again, Paul wrote, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. As I explained last week, Paul sets the stage in reality for his declaration of the superiority of the contentment experienced only in Jesus Christ within these two verses specifically, verses 10 and 11. 
Paul expressed his joy and that he had once again provided opportunity that God had provided this opportunity to the Philippian church and believers to once again become his partners in the gospel. That is, active partners in the gospel. They were already with him in part, obviously, but yet there had been hindrances that had prevented them from being able to partner with Paul in helping to meet his needs physically as he would continue in the gospel ministry. So we see here that Paul says in verse 11, he clarifies by stating, not that I speak in respect of what, when he said that he was thankful for how God had used uh, the Philippians and given them this open opportunity again to minister to him in the gospel. He wasn't doing it out of selfish desire, nor out of even need at that point, saying, oh, I'm in desperate need, so therefore, you know, I'm so glad you're able to meet my needs once again. And by the way, let's not forget that Paul's writing this letter, this epistle from prison. So surely uh, there were some needs present, and obviously they did not have a commissary in which he could go and just purchase what he wanted from the, from the prison, but yet the fact of the matter was that Paul was in need, but yet that's not why he is writing this to the Philippian believers. His joy is in that they are able now again to participate and experience the joy of what it is to partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul expresses that very clearly here. The statement in respect in verse 11 means according to, and the statement of want means lack or need. And so Paul is saying that he is not speaking according to a lack or a need. He goes on to say, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The Lord had taught Paul throughout his earthly ministry that his provision was all sufficient. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7 and 8, we read, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. I believe these verses of Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians are very important as we read through the portion of Philippians, which we are in right now, because we recognize that there is a connection here. When Paul says that God is able to make all things, that you abound in all things, sufficiency in all things, that you abound to every good work, notice again the context is that Paul is stating that God will provide what is necessary and needed faithfully provide so that his work and purpose is accomplished through you as he is so determined to work in and through you. So Paul's contentment, as he expresses, was rooted in his confidence that regardless of his physical situation or circumstances, God was going to faithfully provide all that was necessary to fulfill his eternal purpose through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul was a minister of the gospel. So as we progress in this study of the superiority of the contentment found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, Paul explains how this contentment was completely dependent upon his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 4. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now before we begin to delve into these verses, I believe it is necessary again that we read the definition I provided last week for you of this word or term contentment or being content. Webster's 1828 dictionary defined the adjective content as held, contained within limits, 
hence quiet or not disturbed, having a mind at peace, satisfied so as not to repine, object or oppose. So the satisfaction which Paul speaks of, this contentment included within this definition of being content, is that one is satisfied in the sense that there is no opposition. They are not fretting nor repining and are not objecting to what is. In other words, the contentment of which Paul writes is more than an attempt to be satisfied. I believe there are many who desire to be satisfied or or make an attempt to show an outward contentment or or satisfaction, but yet that is not what Paul is speaking of here at all. It's not attempting to be satisfied regardless of unpleasant circumstances. Rather, what Paul speaks of is this contentment which is a willing submission to the Lord and His providential design and care. What's more is that this results in a satisfaction that produces a peace of mind which then is absent of any opposition or resentment of God's purpose and God's plan, even as it would personally unfold within our lives. There's not a believer in the world who would oppose, a genuine believer who would oppose the purpose and plan of God unfolding within the world and the gospel going forth. But yet, if we are not careful, we will begin to resent at times the providential working of God in our own lives due to our lack of understanding or, more importantly, our lack of submission to God as He would work in and through our lives. Some years ago, I asked a pastor friend of mine in relation to himself, his family, his, you know, but more specifically the church in which he pastors. I said, or asked him, I said, how are things going? His reply to me was one which I have never forgotten and one I've often used as well throughout time. He said, well, things are probably not as good as I think they are. And things are probably not as bad as I think they are. He said, but they're probably somewhere in between. And I thought of how fitting that was, even in relationship to pastoring a church. You know, people ask, how's the church? Well, things are you know, relatively good or going well, whatever. But the truth is things are usually probably not as good as I may think they are, nor are they as bad as I may think they are, but they fall somewhere in between the two. And there's something to be said about having a proper perspective of what truly is. But yet within verse 12 of this chapter in Philippians 4, Paul does not speak of moderation at all. Notice he doesn't say, well, things aren't as bad as they could be or not as good as they could be. But rather, he provides an example of the extremes which he has personally experienced within his life. While it's true that things are not usually as good or as bad as we believe them to be at the moment, it tends to... It, it's, it would, tend to seem that we come to a place in which things are really good at a moment and we, we think, oh, life is just great, but really there's still problems or at the flip of a switch, a snap of a finger, things can quickly turn around. Or we experience something that is bad at the moment, we become very despondent or we become very um, uh, skeptical or what have you, and so it affects us in this negative manner in which then we think that the whole world is falling up to pieces and our lives are falling apart at the same time. But notice Paul here, he does give us two extremes rather than some moderation or middle-of-the-road statement. And I believe we all can relate. Though things are not 
usually as good or bad as we may think them to be at the moment, I believe we can all relate to Paul's summarization of his life as he explains in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me again. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Boy, those are two extremes he mentions. He goes, I know, he says, everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Those are two extremes. Both to abound and to suffer need. Again, two extremes here that Paul mentions. And there are terms within this verse which I believe need to be defined for us to appreciate what Paul is actually saying or teaching us. First, the word abased. Abased means to humble or make humble, abound, to have or possess, possess in great quantity, instructed. This is an interesting word here because it's not what you may think it to mean. It is not meaning simply instructed that someone is teaching me something in respect of in a classroom setting, but rather it's to initiate or to learn the secret then to be full is to be filled or to be satisfied. Hungry is, of course, hunger or be hungry. Bound again to have or possess in great quantity, he uses that, that uh, word twice. And then suffer need, which is to lack or to fall short of that provision, whatever that may be. And so it's from these definitions of terms that Paul uses as it translated in our text that we understand the truth of what Paul is actually saying. Paul says this, in other words, I know how to be humble or be made humble, and I know how to have or possess in great quantity. Everywhere, in everything, I have learned this. Listen here, I have learned the secret of being filled and satisfied and to experience hunger, both to have or possess in great quantity, and to lack and fall short of that which is needed. In every circumstance and in every time of his life, in both times of prosperity and in times of great need, Paul concludes that in and through all of this, he had learned to be content. He actually had learned the secret of being filled and satisfied. In other words, I believe what Paul is saying is, when it's bad, it may be really bad, but I have learned to be content when it is bad. But when it's good, it may be really good, but I have learned to be content when it is good. And the point of Paul's statement, as we will further see as we progress in our study even this morning, is that contentment had absolutely nothing, zero, to do with his circumstances. He says, I'm content whether I'm hungry or whether I'm filled. I'm content whether I have uh, possessed great quantity or whether I am lacking and am in, in, in need. It says, regardless, it's not the circumstance that determines the contentment that I have. Verses 10 through 12 again, let's read them. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So as we read these three verses together, as we've just done, after having dissected each of them last week and again this morning, we better understand the point which Paul makes within this passage. Verse 10. Paul is expressing his joy that the Lord has once again provided the opportunity for the Philippian church to partner with him in the gospel. In verse 11, 
Paul explains that his joy is not due to a personal lack, which he has or is experiencing, but rather that he has learned to be satisfied and to embrace God's providential work in his life without questioning or without resenting how God's providential plan may personally affect him. And then in verse 12, Paul further expounds upon the extreme circumstances he has experienced in which he remains content in God's provision, therefore expounding on the stability of his joy. Because regardless of the extreme circumstances, it really makes no difference because he has contentment and joy all the same. Then he comes to the verse that all of us know, all of us have heard quoted, of, quoted all of us have seen on TV through whatever means it may be, whether it be some religious station or some, um, some professing Christian who has it uh, written on their helmet or whatever else it may be or under their eyes. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. In verse 13, Paul explains how such contentment can exist while enduring such extreme situations in life. Hungry or full, in need or having great quantity, humility or exaltation, it doesn't matter. Paul says, None of that regulates contentment. I would venture to say that in many cases we hopefully have, well, I would venture to say this has been our story before. Hopefully we have matured beyond this. I I would truly desire and hope that this would be the case. But I would still say that it's pretty certain that at some point in our Christian walk or in our walk since we've been believers in Jesus Christ and have followed after Him, that there have been moments in which our circumstances would definitely affect our sense or our, or our expression of contentment and joy. But if that be the case, it's because in those moments we really were not finding or realizing our contentment to be in Jesus, but in something else. Let me pause for a moment, and I digress for just a second, but to help you better understand in relation to contentment, maybe what we call or what's been referred to, of course, and scripturally as God's love or the love of God. How many people, when things are going as they desire for them to go in life or things are well, health is there, family's doing well, so on and so forth, they will talk about how, oh, God's blessings are just so rich and God has been so good to me. And, and that may be true, but yet in many cases, such a statement is derived from a sense of feeling God's blessings in my life because things are just good and as I desire for them to be. But let me ask you this. Do you think that's the sense of contentment that Job expressed or experienced? When he says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. When Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That had nothing to do with what Job was experiencing at the moment, it had to do with his trust in God and the relationship that he experienced with the Lord. Now, Job was an Old Testament believer, of course, who had not the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. How much more so should we as New Testament people who have the presence of God dwelling within us genuinely both experience and express contentment because of Christ? 
Last week I mentioned to you that this verse, verse 13 of Philippians 4, has been often mistaught, misunderstood, and misused by the ever-increasing subjectivity of man. In other words, many religious people have plucked this verse completely from its context and attempted to apply it to themselves as though quoting or using this verse will give them some supernatural ability to fulfill their own personal desires and goals. Let me ask you something. Do you think that Paul desired to be in prison while he was in the Philippian jail? No. But was Paul content while in prison in the Philippian jail? Yes. Do you think that Paul is saying, I'm going to get out of here one day because, by the way, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Do you think Paul was quoting that or making writing this saying, you know, Peter actually was released out of prison, if you recall. Remember when he was in jail and he supernaturally was released and went through the, the prison without the doors having been opened and, and God allowed him to, uh, to go and, and escape this prison supernaturally, if you will, while no one knew that he had escaped? Do you think Paul is referring to Peter going, well, if it happened to Peter, then it can happen to me. So I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. No. Paul is not saying, if I plug this verse into my life, I can win a football game. If I plug this verse into my life, I can become the MVP. If I plug this verse in my life, oh, I can make it through some difficult situation of life which I desire to get out of. If I plug this verse in my life, then I can escape debt. No. Paul is saying, God has equipped me through the presence of his ever-living Son and his Spirit dwelling in me that no matter what I face, his purpose and his plan will be accomplished. Regardless, Paul is saying this is not about me and what I want. Would to God we would understand today that Paul is not giving us some secret words or prayer or proclamation by which God is saying, okay, if you just say this, then I'll do whatever you want me to do. No, Paul is saying God has equipped me in Christ that his purpose and plan will be fulfilled even if it looks like it, there's an obstruction, even if it looks like there's a hindrance that is insurpassable or beyond my means to get beyond, yet he says, none of that matters. God's purpose will be accomplished. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. God will sustain me for the time and purpose to which he has placed and called me at this time in my life. So these aren't some magical words that we just pluck out of the Scriptures and just plug in wherever we want and use them subjectively. We must not. If you do, then you're showing your spiritual ignorance and immaturity. So Paul is not speaking of Jesus as being his source of strength in which he is able then to make his personal goals uh, come to pass or to live out his selfish dreams. Rather, Paul is expressing that he rests in the strength of the Lord Jesus, who is all-sufficient to sustain him both through need and prosperity for his purpose and plan to be fulfilled. To simplify Paul's statement, Paul was confident that the circumstances of his life, whatever they may be, both good and bad, would not hinder the Lord's purpose and ministry of the gospel from being fulfilled in his own life. <clears throat> I think, let's just... Let's just Stop for a moment and 
attempt to logically, rationally think this through. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. People subjectify that to the point to where, again, it's like their wish becomes God's command. So what I desire, God's going to do because I claim this and I believe this. Well, let me ask you something. Can you escape physical death through Christ who strengthens you? Can you? What's the scripture say? It's appointed that a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Do we not know that death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned? The result of man's sin in the garden is that man will physically die. So you can't escape physical death because you quote or say you believe Philippians 4.13. And no more so can you accomplish things you want to accomplish because you quote or believe Philippians 4.13. That is not what this is. This is a declaration of Paul's commitment and contentment to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who therefore will be his strength through every circumstance unto the glory of God that his purpose, God's purpose, be fulfilled in his life. It is through the strength of Christ, without question, that the impossible is able to be accomplished in and through Paul. I can see that. Paul is not saying, okay, now I myself have the ability because of Jesus, I can do whatever I need to do. No, it is impossible circumstances being fulfilled through Christ who dwelled in Paul. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it's Paul who wrote, Now unto him that is able, listen to what he says, to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Everybody loves Because, oh yeah, we ask or think this, so God can do above and beyond that which we can even imagine. And that's true, but look at the next statement. According to the power that worketh in us. Might I say to you, the next verse is going to help clarify this even more. Verse 21, but before I read it, let me say, This isn't talking again, just like Philippians 4.13 is not referencing your desires and goals. Neither is this saying, oh, you just ask or thinking and God's, he's able to do above and beyond that. So just trust him for that. No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. The next statement should cause us to stand and be in awe and wonder of this truth spoken in verse 20. Verse 21 says this, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. This is beyond our imagination. The power that works in us is able to glorify and honor God through us, world without end, amen. That is far exceeding anything I could ever imagine or think. As I previously mentioned during our study last week, the truth of Paul's claim in Philippians 4.13 is clearly demonstrated in Philippians 2.13 and also 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, to enable you to accomplish all that you set your mind to. No, that's not what the verse says. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Oh, you mean it's not about I can do what I want because Christ is in me and I believe this verse and cling to it and therefore subjectively I try to attempt to apply it to my life? No. No. That's not at all what's being stated. 
It is God which works in us both to will and to do not what we want, but to do will, do will and to do what He desires of His good pleasure. By the way, again, this power that worketh in us, able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, let me remind you of this truth. When we were born again, we were delivered from sin. But we were also made free not only from sin, the power and bondage of sin, but we were also made free unto righteousness. And that is something that no unbelieving person can do. No one can live out righteousness when righteousness has not been imputed unto them in Jesus Christ. So we live out righteousness because righteousness has been imputed unto us, which is something that's impossible for us to do apart from Christ in us. Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that or so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You see what Paul is saying here? And again, Look, don't subjectify this passage either. Paul is not saying, well, I, just, I don't like this thorn. I just want it gone. I believe absolutely by the testimony of Paul's life, it would be totally inconsistent for us to even begin to consider or think or assume that Paul is stating this out of selfish motive or reason. When Paul says, I want this to depart, Lord, please take this, this hindrance away, I believe he viewed it as though this were hindering him in the gospel ministry and say, saying, Lord, I don't want this to be a hindrance. Please remove it so I can continue totally committed to the gospel. But yet, Paul was then brought to the realization that it was necessary for this to be in his life because otherwise he would become proud and independent and self-sufficient. But God was reminding him that I am, you are dependent upon me, Paul, and my will and my strength and my purpose will be manifested in and through your life as you depend upon me. So Paul recognized that his only strength was Christ in him. Paul continued, verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye have done well, or well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. So Paul acknowledged in verse 14, and he also applauded the Philippians for their continued participation with him in his sufferings for the gospel's sake. The church did not distance themselves from Paul because of his suffering, but rather engaged with him as the Lord provided opportunity for them to do so. Isn't it interesting? It's kind of odd, isn't it? But, you know, when things are are seemingly going well, or when someone is very popular, or someone is very well known, whether it be individuals, pastors, churches, let's look at it from the, from the uh, Christian perspective, if you will, if I can use that term as far as the Christian, visible Christian um, groups, if you will. It's not uncommon when things seem to be booming and going well and doing well that people are attracted towards that. You know, they want to be a part of that. But then, you know, if something goes awry, that oh, no, we got to back up in distance from this. I'm not talking about sin necessarily, okay? We are to, of course, rebuke and instruct and, and of course, uh, exhort people concerning sin and such. I'm talking about, like, just as far as an outward manifestation of something seeming to boom or go well, and people want to all of a sudden, what's going on there? Let's get involved in that. Let's become, you know, gather around this. But notice with the church here at Philippi, Paul is in prison. 
Things are not going well for Paul from an outward perspective. He's identified, of course, as one who is an enemy of the state, if you will, religiously speaking, of course, from that perspective. And yet, what do the people at Philippi do? What does this church do? Oh, they minister to him, rally, they gather around him. Not because he's popular, and, and it's not because he's committed sin, because he hasn't. Not, that's not the reason he's imprisoned. He's imprisoned for the gospel's sake. So what do these people do? What does this church do? They gather around him. They communicated with, his inflict, with him in his affliction. They were, not, they were not embarrassed, nor were they ashamed, nor were they afraid to identify in the sufferings of Christ as Paul suffered in the sufferings of Christ. I want to make a statement that I think you have to understand what I'm about to say. That does not mean that God does not bless his church, grow his church, None of those things. I'm not claiming that nor inferring that in any manner. We'll say this. Biblical Christianity has never been nor will it ever be popular. Disciples of Jesus Christ have never been nor will they ever be popular. If you find someone or a group or a church, quote unquote, in which the world adores there's a real spiritual problem that is present. Now, we do not have to make ourselves offensive. It's not that we are to be obstinate or that we are just to be, uh, in fact, Scripture commands that we are to live with all men as much as is possible. We are to, of course, be living peaceably. And the other thing is this. It's not that we are to go out and instruct every individual who doesn't know Jesus about how sinful they are and their, what they're committing, their sins they're committing. No, we are to declare the gospel unto them. They need Jesus not reformed, not to be reformed. They don't need religion, they need redemption. And so it's not our responsibility to go out and point out every sin of every person that we see. It's our responsibility to go out proclaiming the gospel to sinners, knowing that Christ alone can redeem and change. But within the church, we are to call out and rebuke and exhort and instruct concerning sin, one another as believers. And so we are to be faithful in doing that. But the fact of the matter is, if you follow biblical Christianity and teaching of Scripture, there is nothing about that that is appealing to the unregenerate man, apart from God working in him, bringing him to faith in Christ. But the natural man does not want spiritual things, and he does not understand spiritual things. And to follow after Christ is not something popular. If you remember with me, uh, we find the example of this even in the Gospels. Jesus is feeding the thousands. Recall that? Oh, wait a minute, but there were thousands who followed Jesus. No, they didn't. They were interested in what he could do for them at the moment. But what does the Scripture say? He began to teach them, and here's what he taught them. Except you... Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You cannot be my disciples. And immediately, you know what they did? They said, we're not following you anymore. No, we want you to feed us. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about cannibalism, obviously. What he is saying is, you're interested in this physical food and this physical provision, but what you must understand is, I didn't come here to meet your physical needs. I came here because you have a spiritual problem that I have been sent to resolve. And eating my flesh and drinking my blood was not physical, it was spiritual, and they could not understand that. Hence, they said, we don't want any of this. 
and they all left. Oh, this, these are hard sayings. Why were they hard? Because they were not spiritually minded. Therefore, they were thinking these through with the phys- things through with the physical mind, which could not comprehend nor discern the truth of that which was spoken. So we find the Philippian church communicating with the afflictions of Paul. That's not popular. That's not something that would be everyone was desiring to go and do. In this passage, Paul concluded, I can do all things, things that otherwise would be impossible for me to do, things which are spiritual and eternal, which I could never do. I can do all these things through God's provision for me in Jesus Christ, who is my strength and my weakness and my provision in my need. Paul's overall assertion concerning the superiority of the contentment found in Jesus Christ is simply this. As I told you, you could underline this in your Bible if you'd like, because this is the overall message Paul is teaching throughout this portion of the text. I have learned to be content through Christ. Paul's contentment was in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had learned the secret of what it was to both abound and to suffer need. He learned the secret of what it was to be filled and to be hungry. He understood the contentment doesn't come out of either one of these or nor middle of the road ground. The contentment is found only in God's provision of Jesus Christ. I have learned to be content through Christ. Let's pray together. Father.